All right, well, I am back. And either every, I've really scared everybody away because we're down to 15 out of 20. I know three, I mean, we've had a couple drops, but we're down to 15 today. Or Professor Delisi scared away everybody on Tuesday. So um, I should, he already, I guess from, I heard from a couple of you that he'd already told you what happened. But if on, my daughter started complaining about stomach pains last Thursday night. And on Sunday, when I start to touch her right about here, she'd just wince. So we had to take her into the ER that afternoon. And she had her appendix out about midnight. So, and then she didn't get out until Tuesday afternoon. So hoped I'd make it back for this class so they'd get her out early enough, but didn't think so. So hopefully you had a fun day with Professor DeLisi for the, for the day. For the day. Um, he should have finished up most of chapter one that we were going to cover. So he pretty much did talked about Newton's laws and talked about gravity, because that was pretty much what we were going to cover there. So I'm going to leave it there, because he probably gave you a lot more detail on that than I normally cover in the class. Because I think he covered it more from a physics perspective, which is a lot of what he teaches here. So it was a nice, easy topic for him to do. He you know, didn't have to prepare a lot, because it's stuff he teaches every, every semester. So I'll leave it there. If you do want to hear what I would have said about my last few slides, you can certainly I have the video lecture up on D2L. You can always go listen to that and hear what I would have said on that. But I'm not going to go ahead and start. I'm going to go on to chapter two so that we can still, I'm not going to change the exam schedule. I'm going to leave it. I probably will not get through chapter, I doubt I will get through chapter two in one lecture. I mean, I'm pretty sure we will not. That would be, that would be me talking very, very fast. And what I will do is I will just cut off the exam wherever we finish today. So whatever we get through today, that'll be what will be covered. And that way we'll still have the exam as scheduled. Yes, sir? Yes, I do. There will be a um, chapter two. There will be an old lecture for chapter two that I've given on iTunes. If you go not to the course. Don't know if I gave you, did I give you, if I gave you all of them. I have like 104, there's a, there's a 104 for spring of 2012 and there's an old one. If you go into the old one, it's got about 150 between lectures and videos and things that I've done. It's got like, it just archives everything I've done. You can go in there and if you look for lectures on chapter two, you could certainly go and hear another old one as to the material that I think is the most important or the video one on D2L you can use. But I covered almost all of what I would have covered in chapter two. We covered a lot of it already. It was just Newton's laws and gravity was pretty much. So the okay. the quiz is on D2L? And the quiz is on, the quiz is, this quiz is available on D2L. If there's any issues, do let me know and email me so we can get it straightened out. I noticed that, I checked just a little while ago, three people have taken it so far. So I know it's, I know it's accessible and it works, that at least three people have gotten into it. It will be in through all day Sunday. So as long as you take it before the end of the day, I think it turns off at like 11.30 on Sunday night. So you've got any time the rest of this week or weekend to, to take that. And that is chapter zero and one. So exam is still as scheduled. Homework, a lot of you turned in. If you haven't turned it in, just get it to me today. And that's fine. I'm not penalizing that. Since I wasn't here Tuesday to collect it and I didn't, I don't think he wanted to take papers and risk losing anything. So I know some of you emailed it to me. A couple dropped it off in my mailbox, which is both, which is both fine. We do have the second quiz coming up, which will be next week. That will be available on Monday. And then homework number two. I know, got that for you too. Do, and again, I've given you, a, I was going to make it do next, the end of next week. I've given you one more just because we are slightly, we'll be slightly behind where we would have been. So I gave you the extra weekend on it as well. So there's one. 
And do note on this one, because I know I had people last semester, I started printing them back to back. There are, there are two questions on the back too. So there are 10 questions. Don't want you to get through the first set and then all of a sudden, first eight and then you know, lose credit on two questions that are on, hiding on the back a little bit. But save stapling everything and putting everything together. One. And one in the back. There you go. All right. So. Any general questions, anything else before we get started? No? 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 Okay. All right. So we have a picture of the day for the day. Now this worked out quite well yesterday and today, so I think somebody at NASA knew exactly what I was going what we were going to be taught what the classes were because Yesterday was actually a picture from the Mars rover for the planetary astronomy class and we have a nice picture of a little galaxy for the stellar astronomy class. So actually something that we'll talk about later in the, later in the semester. There's a galaxy up here and this is a very, it's an irregular galaxy as we call it, an irregular or dwarf galaxy. It's very small, doesn't really have any distinct structure to it. When we look at some galaxies, you may have seen some pictures in the textbook, you've seen some great spiral arms on the galaxies and there's you know, more, more features to them. This is just more of an irregular galaxy. Doesn't really have any coherent pattern to it. But it is undergoing a lot of star formation at the moment. A lot of stars are forming. Now when we talk about stars currently forming, current is not like today and yesterday in astronomy. Current means in the last few million years because that's relatively new in astronomy. These, all this blue glow that you see is from very young stars. And we know they're very young because blue stars, and again we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, we'll get to the details of it, but blue stars don't live very long. Blue stars are very big, very hot, and they go through their fuel very quickly. So some of the biggest, hottest stars might only live a million years, two million years, maybe 10 million years. So if you came back and looked at this 20 million years from now, most of those stars would be gone. And maybe new stars. Question? Mm -hmm. Because we haven't been around long enough to observe that. And even if you can mm -hmm. calculate like the deterioration of a star or mm -hmm. you know, the erosion of mountains or whatever, you still can't, I mean, I feel like it's difficult to mm -hmm. throw out millions of years. Thousands, yes, even yeah. hundreds of thousands, but millions? Yeah. Even what, what we can do is we can actually look in clusters. We can look at clusters of stars and see how they've changed and observe how they've changed. Yes, we can't observe the full length and full length of it. So what is, you know, a million years or 10 million years, but something like the sun, we're talking billions of years. So it gets even, it gets even bigger. That's assuming that the, the, the process has been consistent. That is correct. That is, that is an assumption to it. And that could, could something be different? Were things different five billion years ago? You know, there's no way to tell. So it, it is an assumption that we have to make that the process that forms the star, that's, that the stars are using is the same now as it was millions of years ago. So that you do have to make that assumption, that's correct. So you're saying that the blue stars are the biggest and the hottest, so they, they... They do. They go through their fuel. They're so much bigger and brighter, they go through their fuel. And we can, we can calculate how fast they have to go through their fuel to be as bright as they are. So, so what are the levels? I'm sorry? What are the levels of the hotness of the stars? The, the, blue hot the hotness, the blue is the hottest, right. and they may be 30,000 degrees, 30, 40,000 degrees at the surface. Something like the sun is a relatively cool star, is about 6,000 degrees. 
And the coolest stars, the reddish ones, which eh, there's one or two maybe visible in here that actually have a reddish tinge to them, those are about 3,000 degrees. So there's a big range in the temperature, a big range in the temperatures too. And they're all hot. I mean, even 3,000 degrees, a cool star is still 3,000 degrees. And that's 3,000. It actually uses a system we'll talk about in a little bit called the Kelvin scale. It's very close to the Celsius scale. It's offset by that by about 200 and some degrees, 273 degrees. So if you go Fahrenheit or anything that you're more used to, it's completely different. But when you're talking thousands and millions of degrees, it's, it doesn't matter too much. Is yeah. that scale how you measure the temperature that high? Is that, that's, is that, that, that scale is just the, the, the scale that is used in astronomy and in a lot of science to measure temperatures. And a lot of it uses Celsius. When you talk about astronomy, it usually goes to Kelvins. Kelvin is the advantage of it, it never goes negative. You cannot have a negative temperature in Kelvin. The lowest temperature you can possibly get is as low as things can possibly go. What, okay. what's, what, is, um, what do we have here that's. Mm -hmm. It's okay. I'm trying to figure out no, what we have on Earth mm -hmm. that's. Um, that can be penetrated. Like, what's the highest degree? Highest temperatures? Yeah. We can reach. They can, they can reach millions of degrees. Someone, give me a second. Oops. Sorry. You can reach millions of degrees. I mean, they can. What? What? What is that? What level is um, I, I'm not that familiar with it. I'd have, to look, I'd have to look up a little bit more. But I know like some of the colliders and things where they collide particles together, they can reach incredibly high temperatures. You know, hotter than, you know, if you're going to try to make fusion power, you need to be able to hit 10 million degrees. So the, the fusion would be like the physicists colliders, the big particle colliders and things like that. OK? Yeah. How many known galaxies? Known? I can't say that there's a specific number, but millions to billions of them. I mean, this one little section of it, there's one galaxy here. But there's a galaxy. There's a galaxy. Those two would be. There's another one there. And I'm not even trying to pick out all of them, but there's just, you know, just in this little tiny section of the sky, there's a good number of galaxies. The question? Okay. Okay. But what the picture is showing, let's go back to that. I appreciate the questions because I don't mind. The other discussion is good. It's stuff that will come up. Um, is what it's really pointing out, and it's hard to see right here, but there's a little bit of a stream. Can you see a little bit of a fuzziness to that, maybe that section where I just pointed out? You might not catch it on your own. But that is actually where, that is actually another galaxy that's being torn apart or has been torn apart by this galaxy. So they may have, it may have passed through it. They may have collided. And in colliding, it may have increased the energy of this galaxy and started it forming all these stars. And this galaxy has been, this little galaxy has been torn apart. Now these are two little tiny galaxies. These aren't big like ours. But this happens on a larger scale too. And we'll look at this towards the end of the semester. And we'll actually see where there are galaxies that have collided together and changed their shape. And maybe galaxies like ours have formed because a number of these galaxies over a long period of time actually collided together. That's how we think galaxies may have formed. Yes, sir? I noticed you said uh, it was called an irregular galaxy. An irregular galaxy. Is there a word for that? Is that like a 
are the what's the criteria that has to meet to be considered in just a regular galaxy? Well, irregular galaxy. When we when we classify galaxies, you look for their structure. How do they appear? There are elliptical galaxies, which would look like a big ball, so just a big ball of stars. You have spiral galaxies, which are real flat and have spiral arms to them, and then. There's a couple others that we'll take a talk about too that are not as common. And then there are irregular galaxies or pretty much there's no structure to it. So it is a galaxy. It's a galaxy just like any other. It just happens to be a very small galaxy. And it doesn't have any kind of coherence. You don't see big spiral arms coming off of it. And that's just, we cla they're classified completely on how they appear. So there could be borderline cases too. There could be one that you know maybe somebody sees a little bit bigger galaxy and they see a little bit of spiral structure maybe in that. You know, there could be borderline cases as well. But in general, it's how they appear. And usually the ones I'll show you will be most, the most obvious ones. So questions? It's good questions. I appreciate it. No? No? OK. Well, let's go back. We finished. So chapter 0, we did. Chapter 1, uh, Professor DeLisi finished up with you. The other thing I said I was going to show that I don't think he had a chance to was the one, was the one video from the Apollo mission. This is from the Apollo 15 mission. And it's just a couple minute video. I'm going to go ahead and play it for you here in just a minute. But it does, it does a demonstration of Galileo's. And I'd finished up with Galileo. And one of the things I said he was known for is going up to the leaning tower of Pisa and dropping the two balls that fell at the same time. Now, normally, you don't think of that as happening, right? If I drop a metal ball and a paper ball, they're not going to fall at the same time. The metal one falls faster. That's only on Earth because there's air resistance that pushes them up together, that pushes them up. If we can do it on the moon, and this is what I'm going to play here, is actually from the Apollo mission in the 1970s, where they actually did this experiment. And let me get the buff. And you'll see he's got a, he'll explain it, but he's got a hammer in one hand and a feather in the other. He'll drop it to the If I did that here, hammer's going to fall straight down. Oops, here he goes. Is that audible? Ooh, that was good. And if you think about it, I mean, that's pretty good. I mean, Galileo didn't have the advantage of being able to go to the moon to be able to do something without removing air resistance. He did this, you know, based on his experiments and what he thought might work, and that's what he found out. So it wasn't something that was necessarily, you know, obvious. It's one of those things, you know, like the Earth. We talk about the the sky moving, well, everything moves around the Earth. It's obvious that it does when you sit out there and look at it. It's obvious that you know heavy objects fall lighter than, fall faster than light. I mean, it's it's intuitive. You see, you see it every day. So it was kind of a big jump for Galileo to actually go ahead and make that 
discovery that this is how things would work when he couldn't. He couldn't take something to the moon. He couldn't create a vacuum to do it. You, know, you can do the experiment on Earth by creating a vacuum tube. You know, make a big tube and evacuating the air out, and then you can see that things ha will do it the same way. So, sort of a big jump, big jump for him. But since I know Professor DeLisi said he didn't have that one, I wanted to make sure I at least showed it to you so you got a chance to see it. So, question? No? No? All right. Then we will go on to chapter two on light and matter. So, we're going to talk about this chapter is about light and matter. And again, as far as I get through here in the next little under an hour now is where I'll cut off for the exam. So you'll be chapter zero will be completely covered, chapter one anything on that, chapter two as far as we get and then anything else in chapter two will be continu continued to the next one. So what we have here, beautiful picture of a nebula, sort of looks like one of our pictures of the day at some point, but why we have to study light and matter and how they interact is because astronomy is very different from other sciences. We can't go and experiment, right? I can't go experiment. I can't bring this galaxy that we looked at in our first picture and bring it into the laboratory and do something with it. I can't change its temperature. You know, I can't push it and pull it and you'll see what happens, happens to it. I can't really take two galaxies and say, what happens if I smash them together this way? What if I do it this way? I can't do that physically. We can make models and do experiments like that. But anything else we see, anything we learn about the stars, if we want to know how big a star is, how much mass it has, what it's made up of, what its temperature is. I mean, can't go stick a thermometer in the star either, right? You know, you have no way to do any of that. In order to find out any of the properties of the star, all you can do is study the light that comes from them. So you're stuck just studying that light. And that's the only thing astronomers have. Now we have the advantage now that there are lots of different kinds of light. And when I say light, you tend to think of visible light that you see every day. Well, there's actually other kinds of light too. There's a whole spectrum of electromagnetic radiation that we'll talk about that includes things like x-rays. So we can observe x-rays from the sky. We can observe radio waves from the sky. And ultraviolet, infrared, all sorts. And we'll go through the entire spectrum. And when we look at things in different wavelengths, we can actually learn more about them because certain objects emit a lot of visible light. Certain objects will emit more in the radio or in the x-ray portion of the spectrum. It will tell us more about that type of object. So we want to be able to understand light and how light and matter interact with each other. So our chapter, our little summary, first of all, is information. What are we studying from the skies? Then we'll go in through and talk about waves. And I said, I said the electromagnetic spectrum we will talk about. Thermal radiation, that's what we see from the stars. It's radiation just due to a star having a specific temperature. So every star has a very specific temperature and the amount of type of radiation that it gives us is what we call thermal. It's because it has a certain temperature. The hotter it is, a different color it'll be. So the hot stars are going to appear blue. The cool stars are going to appear redder. We'll get off, we'll find, there's actually is, there's thermal radiation, there's actually a non-thermal radiation that we talk about towards the end of the semester that actually applies to much more energetic objects and things like, you know, the centers of galaxies when more interesting things are going on. And then, probably won't get to all this this time, but spectroscopy, how do we study the stars? You know, we see the light from them. Spectroscopy is a method to break that light apart and study it. So, Break the light out into the colors of the rainbow, split it up, 
and we can actually see a lot more detail. We can learn about specifically that can tell us what a star is made up of, how it's moving through space. We can learn a lot about it just by this light. I mean, it's amazing in astronomy what you can learn just by the light that's coming from the star. Because you can't. You can't go take that star, bring it into the laboratory and say, well, what happens if I were to increase? You know, we think the temperature is 15 million degrees at the center of the sun. What would happen if it were 20 million? We can't, I can't go change that. You know, a physicist can go change and try to have two things of different masses. What if we trade it? You know, we can try different experiments in physics. You can mix chemicals together in chemistry. You know, biology, you can cut things apart and find out how they work. We can't go, can't go dissect a star. Not physically, you know. We can do it theoretically, but again, this is how we learn everything about them. Spectral lines. Again, we won't get to this till next time, probably in a week from today. But spectral lines are what we see when we split everything up into the colors of the rainbow. There's actually lines that appear in the spectrum. And those will tell us a lot about the specific object that is making them. And then finally, we'll come back to the Doppler effect. We'll be at the very end and say, we'll get to that next week. And Doppler effect, you're familiar with, indirectly at least, if you don't know the name. Doppler effect tells you how things are moving. You're usually familiar with it in terms of, you know, a siren as a fire engine passes you or a police car passes you. You hear a very high pitch coming towards you. And then after it passes, all of a sudden the pitch gets very low. Light does exactly the same thing. Something coming towards you, it gets, short, it gets shortened and looks at shorter wavelengths as it's coming towards you. If it passes you and it's going away from you, it's going to be shifted towards longer wavelengths. Now we'll go over that again in much more detail towards the end. That's just the quick the quick thing, but you're familiar with the general idea of the pitch of you know, the siren changing as it, as it passes you. So, as I said, for example, electromagnetic radiation. Give you a formal definition here as just transmitting energy through space without any physical connection. It's varying electric and magnetic fields. So it's a combination of waves. It's got electric fields changing, magnetic fields changing, and the combination of it forms what we call electromagnetic radiation. The kind you're most familiar with is light, the light that we see every day. Light coming from the sun, light being reflected from this, light from the lights, light from the light bulb, light on the screen. It's all, it is all visible light. We, so we call that one type of electromagnetic radiation. The other kinds we can get, and we'll go through them, but there's all sorts of others. That's just a tiny, tiny portion of the entire spectrum. So after we go through waves, you'll look and you'll find that there is a lot more to electromagnetic radiation than just visible light. Visible light is just one small portion of it. But again, this is just the definition, this is just the formal, more formal definition explaining, telling us how the light is, light is how the light is how the light transports itself. So there's no physical connection, unlike most waves. Most waves have to have something physical with them. Sound waves, for example. If we take all the air out of this room, other than that we all drop dead immediately, but if we could ignore that fact, and I, would sit th I could be sitting here talking, and no sound would be transmitted to you, because the sound waves from my voice need some medium to transport through them. The light would still be there. Light doesn't need a medium to transport through. If that was the case, we wouldn't be able to see the sun. If light needed something to transport through, we wouldn't get any energy from the sun because the light would not be able to travel through the vacuum of space. Sound could not. You could make a big explosion on the sun. We'd never hear it on the Earth. It can't travel through space. But the light from it can. Light does not need that. Need that. 
Fortunately for us, otherwise it would be a very dark sky. There'd be nothing there. You couldn't see the moon, you couldn't see the planets, you couldn't see the sun, you couldn't see the stars or the galaxies or anything else. So this would be a very, very short course. But what are waves? Here's an example of a wave. And you're probably familiar with some of this terminology. But wave transports energy without actually physically transporting material. So when I speak, it's not the exact wave, it's not the same, not the same air that's getting to my ears that's leaving, that's leaving my mouth, that's getting to your ears. It's a vibration that is created in the, ro in the room. So I'm not actually physically transporting material. Now the example would be, do we have one here? Yeah, I'm not going to turn it on though. Got a, got a gas thing here, right? Turn on gas for the chemistry experiments. If I turn that on, you immediately hear a hiss. I'm not going to do it. I don't need to, don't need to cause you know, safety issues. But you'd immediately hear the hissing. But you wouldn't smell the gas right away, right? You, know, you people up front would smell it first, and then it would slowly work its way to the back if we left it on that long, and then it would really be a, then it would really be a safety issue. But that's the whole idea is that you're transmitting the sound. The sound wave is transmitting through the air just fine, but it's not actually transmitting the particles. The particles go through much slower. And the same kind of thing happens with any kind of physical wave. Now this is just giving you some of the definitions of the terms. The peak of the wave is the crest, so the highest point it reaches. The trough is the lowest part. Lowest part. The amplitude is how high. How high does the wave get? And not how high does it get from the bottom. You have to have some reference point. And the reference point we use is sort of where the wave would be if there, where it would be if there was no wave. So it evens everything out kind of right through the middle here, that it goes above, above this, under, what we call the undisturbed state, below it. That's just where we measure. The amplitude is from that. So how high is that? If you're looking at water waves, those could be a few inches, a few feet, a few meters, or more, depending on how big of a wave you're getting. The wave length is the distance between two crests. So how far is it? When you talk about water waves, what could that be? That could be a few inches if they're close together. It could be much further. It could be, they could be apart by meters or tens of meters or hundreds of meters even. You know, if you're looking out in the ocean at the big waves coming in, real big waves coming in, they might have a very long wavelength. They might be very widely separated. There might be 10, 20 meters between, between them. Yeah, sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. They disperse water in space, right? Dispersed water, yeah. What happens to it? It would freeze. In, it would freeze instantly. I mean, it would just if you tried to spray water out into space, it would instantly freeze. What about a large, uh, like a, a lot of water? Well, I was getting at was mm -hmm. if you can if you could transport energy without the physical transportation of material through air. Right. There's air and water, right? Yeah, there's so usually air now, dissolved into so water. Yeah. If you had a large amount of water, mm -hmm. possibly hear through the air and water. You could certainly you could hear through water. You can still you can hear through water. In fact, the sound waves would travel faster through water than they do through air. In space, if you could get a, you wouldn't be able to get the water would immediately freeze. Even even a giant amount of it's, it's that cold that it would freeze. You know. Instantly for us, I mean, it might take it fractions of a second, but it would freeze very, very quickly. But you would be able to, but yeah, but you would be able to, yes, if you were to put, if you could put something like that and you could put your ear on one end of it 
and you could make a sound on the other, you'd be able to hear it. It would be able to travel through that medium. But if you were away from it, you would not be able to hear it. And it once it gets to the end and hits vacuum of space, then all of a sudden, it, right. there's no sound. Yes, sir? So you're telling me with all those sci-fi movies, things exploding space, there's really no There is no sound. They should be completely silent. <laughs> And most, and most of them do do that wrong. Most of them actually do show, do, show no, do show noise. I think there's a few that do it right. What was the one? I think I remember seeing it in, I think it was the newer Star Trek movie that came out a couple years ago. And I think they do an explosion there, and it's silent. The screen is silent for actually a couple seconds while they're showing it from outside, which is actually correct. That's how it should be. But yeah, all those sci-fi movies where things are blowing up and you're hearing sounds, you shouldn't be hearing anything. It should be completely silent. So those are just the terms, that's just the terminology here, just giving you some of the terms. Wavelength, how far apart the waves are. Crest and trough are just the peak, highest and lowest points. And amplitude is how high it gets. So amplitude is how high the crest gets above, if you think of you know, the ocean or the pond, where it would be if there were no waves. If you just had, you just have a nice even level. That's just how high it gets above them. On a little pond, they, the waves may only get a couple inches high. So here's the example of water waves. And if you've ever watched, you watch something bobbing in the water. The waves move outward, right? But if you have a little, little rubber ducky sitting there or a little stick or something, in there, it doesn't move out with the waves, right? It just, it might move slowly out. It is slowly maybe moving out, but the waves are moving much, much faster. Same thing I was just talking about with the, the gas. I turn the gas on, sound waves go boom. You'll hear it at the back of the room almost as quick as you'll hear it in the front. But you won't smell it the same. The actual physical particle takes a lot longer to diffuse through the room. So the water is really just moving, pretty much just bouncing up and down. The water that was there in this spot is pretty much staying in that same spot. It's not going anyplace. But you can transmit energy through it. So it can actually, you know, that those waves can do things. They can eat away at the shore, you know, they'll get to the shore and they will transmit energy. But they're not actually transmitting all the water. You're not constantly moving the water. So as you said, you see the stick there, or if you put a little, little rubber ducky in there and let it bounce up and down, it would just sit there and it'd be bobbing up and down. It would go up and down through the waves, but it wouldn't just, the first wave that picks it up doesn't take it and move it. So we see that in terms of the waves. Again, you're transmitting the energy. You're not just transmitting the material. A couple other definitions. Frequency is the number of wave crests that pass every second. So if you're standing there at the shore watching the waves come in, and they got to be coming in pretty, pretty fast, <laughs> but if you had 10 waves hit you in a second, then that would be your frequency. You'd have 10 waves every second hitting you. Now that would be obviously very fast. Most of the frequencies for a water wave would be like one per second maybe half each second, maybe it takes two seconds to get one wave to hit you, depending on how fast they're coming in. But it's just how many wave crests that pass you every second. So if you're standing in the water and you feel those waves coming at you, however many hit you in a given second, that tells you what we call the frequency. Now the frequency is for water waves, of course, is very, gonna be very low. Not gonna get very many, many water waves hitting you in a second. When you talk about light waves, you can be getting tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of them every second because their wavelengths are incredibly tiny. So it depends actually on the, on the wave itself and on the wavelength, of, on how big the wave is. 
The period of the waves is sort of the opposite of that. It's how long it takes for a crest to hit you, for the next crest to hit you. So if you're standing there again in the ocean watching the waves hit you, one wave hits you, okay, one second, two, two, then the period is two seconds. It hits you, one hits you every two seconds. So they're just inversely related. If the period is, let's go with two, two seconds. It takes two seconds from one wave hits you, the other wave hits you two seconds later. The frequency would then be one half. Okay, period is one divided by the frequency. So if the frequent period is two, then the frequency is going to be one half. Does it make sense? Okay. So it's just telling you how, how fast the things are coming. The higher the frequency, the more waves you're getting hit with every second. So water waves that are coming faster and faster have a higher frequency and will tend to do more damage, right? If you've got lots of waves coming all at once, they're going to tend to do more damage to the shore, digging out the shore, if you have more waves coming. Same thing with light waves. If you have a higher frequency light waves, well, visible light, higher frequency than visible are things like ultraviolet, which will burn you, right? Sun burns you. You have x-rays, which can do more damage, and gamma rays, which can do even more damage. Those are even higher frequency. They're the same type, of, same type of particle, same thing as visible light. They just have a lot more energy, a lot higher frequency. Sound? I'm sorry? Sound. sound can vary, but sound is completely different from electromagnetic wave. So sound could do, if you had the same, if you had a higher frequency sound, it tends to do more damage, right? If you, get, if you sing at a real high frequency, you can shatter glass if you get it just right. Right? So I mean, more sound waves coming, higher pitched sound waves can do more damage as well. About the dog whistles? They're still a they're still a sound wave. They're a sound wave. They're just at a higher frequency than your ears are sensitive to. So you won't hear anything. You can blow the dog whistle and you don't hear anything, but the dog sure hears it because the dogs have a different range of hearing than we have. Okay. So question? Yes, sir. Sorry. What's the purpose of having two different ways of measuring the same thing? Why just, would you use one over the other? It depends on, it's depending on how you're, how you're measuring, it just depends on how you're measuring things. I mean, a lot of stuff in astronomy, we won't talk about the period of a wave. I'm talking about water waves, it makes a little more sense. It's just sort of what, you're, what the most convenient way to talk about it is, I think, is that. Look at it that way. In frequencies, when I talk about, if I talk about, wave, about light, you talk about frequency, you talk about wavelength, how long the wavelength is. You don't normally talk about the period of that. I've never heard of anyone talking about like I know what it is, but I don't well, when you talk about, if you talk about things like um, bigger waves, when you tend to think about bigger waves, maybe in terms of water waves. If you're doing a physics class where you're doing waves on a string or waves in a spring, you tend, you could do period more often. Just because they're a little bit bigger and the number makes a little more, a little more sense. Okay? Good. Two more. Wavelength. We already looked at that a little bit at the beginning. Wavelength was just the distance between the successive crests. So between one crest and the next crest, that is the wavelength. That's how long the wave is. For things like water waves, that could be centimeters, meters, depending on how far apart they are. For things like light waves, you could be you're talking about called nanometers, billionths of a meter. So there's that many. You know, there's many, it'd be hundreds of millions of them in each, in each meter. So that's just how far apart the crests are. In light waves, they're very, very compacted together. In 
for, for visible light. When we talk about radio light, radio wavelengths can be you know, two centimeters, four centimeters, six centimeters. So the actual wavelengths, the light wa wavelengths of light, except that they're now radio, can actually be several centimeters up to meters apart. You, know? you can have wave, radio wavelengths that are this long or bigger. And velocity just tells you how fast the speed at which the crests are moving. So how fast are those crests moving? And that's just the velocity. Now velocity you should be a little bit more, probably a little bit more familiar with terminology. It tells you how fast the crests are moving. So if you take the wavelength, how big each wave is, divide it by the period, how long it is between them, it tells you a velocity of the wave. For light waves, and that includes, again, when I say light, I mean x-rays, gamma rays, give me one second, radio, everything. It's all the same. The velocity is exactly the same. The velocity is always the speed of light for all of those. Sorry, yeah, I just wanted to finish. Right. You can get the frequency from the velocity, yes, because the frequency is related to the wavelength. So yeah, you can use the frequency to get that, get that as well. But in terms of light waves, it's always the same. When you look at any kind of light waves, radio waves travel at the speed of light, visible light travels at the speed of light, x-rays travel at the speed of light, so they all travel at exactly the same speed at least in the vacuum of space. They vary when you get into things like atmospheres. The atmosphere slows them down a little bit and going through glass would slow them down even a little bit more. All right, a couple patterns of things that we see with waves that, will, that affect us in, in astronomy. Two terms called diffraction, first one. And diffraction, you may have seen, again, going out to the ocean here, you've seen things like a breakwater that sort of stops the waves, right? Well, it doesn't completely. The waves actually can bend around it. So it doesn't completely stop the waves. No way, you know, it's right here and it goes out this far, but this, it doesn't make a complete dark shadow of the waves. They can't not get through. Some of the waves actually do bend around it. And that is a pattern called diffraction. Now, that happens to water waves. That happens to light waves. That'll happen to light waves in a telescope. So if you've ever seen things like you've seen pictures of seen, seen pictures of astronomy pictures with stars, and you see stars, you're, usually they're a nice circle, right? But sometimes you actually see them with a spike pattern, you know, a star pattern to them. That is part of diffraction. Because the way the telescopes are put together, next chapter, they have in the front where you gather the light, there's actually a little cross that holds a little mirror up to help reflect the light back, to help focus the light. And the light going around that actually forms that pattern around especially the very bright stars. So it is just what diffraction is, is just a bending of light around some other medium. So you can't just completely block out the light. Can't completely block out the water waves here. Breakwater is going to help, it's going to minimize the waves. But as you go further and further along, those waves do come down and they will eventually come and hit the shore even in front of the breakwater. It certainly will minimize it, but it doesn't eliminate them completely. The other thing that we get in waves is interference. Waves interfere with each other. So you can actually add up, waves add together and waves subtract. So if you have two waves, so we have one here in green, one here in yellow, and if we add them up, what we're actually going to see, we're not going to see two waves at once, we're going to see the net result of adding those two together and you're going to get something like this. Now the good example for that one that I use is, works better in the summer, unless you're down south right now, but you know, the water parks, a lot of them have that wave pool, right? They put the big waves going out, and you find that in some areas you get very, very big waves. I mean, the waves are being created at the front are all the same waves, 
But some of those waves, when you get them in two and three of them adding together, all together, you can get really, really high waves. And you can also find that there's some points, if you walk out through the wave pool, that there's some parts where there's a wave, but it's really low. The waves are all the same. It's just how they're adding together. And if you get the crests adding together, so instead of adding it this way, if this were another crest here, and going, I mean, upward, if we're going upward, so a top, you'd add them together instead of getting, you know, two units here and one unit here, you'd, instead of having it subtract to one, you could actually get three. You can actually enhance the wave. So interference can minimize the wave. You can actually eliminate it. You know, that's where I usually take the four-year-old out in the wave pool, you know, to the nice low wave. You don't want to, she doesn't want to go out too far into the other ones. The other kids like to go out to where the biggest waves are. So they're looking for areas where they're interfering constructively, where they're adding together and making a much bigger wave. But you can also find that they'll eliminate. Now one of the other ways you can do, one of the other things that this is used is, you know, like you see the noise canceling headphones, right? You put the headphones on and you don't hear anything. It takes out all the noise. So people who work in construction can use them, you know, the jackhammers. It could actually, what it does is it takes the same sound, it re registers the sound coming to it, inverts it, and plays it back. So you're playing two real loud sounds into the ear. So you're not just playing, the, you're not just hearing the jackhammer noise, but you're hearing the same noise with the waveform inverted. When you add them together, you get nothing, or very close to nothing. So that protects their ears, but you're actually blasting two very loud simultaneously into their ear, but that one can, they cancel each other and add up essentially to nothing. Now, of course, nothing's going to cancel exactly perfectly, and you'll get some noise, but it certainly will minimize it and protect your, protect your hearing. So that's another example that you can get of inf interference that's used every day. Okay? Okay. Now, this we've already talked about a little bit, water waves, sound waves, and so on. So when we talked about, you know, all those science fiction movies are wrong. You know, when you hear, when you, that spaceship explodes out in space, it's silent. They all need something to travel through. And they'll travel at different speeds through different, different, uh, different mediums. They'll travel at different speeds. So sound waves travel at one speed through air, but they'll travel at another speed through a solid. So you see the old Western movies where they, what, they listen to the ground to hear something coming. Because you can hear the sound traveling through, you could, the, through the ground faster, or the railroad tracks, you can hear it faster than you actually hear it through coming through the air. So, you know, air is not a very efficient transmission for sound. It does a lot better through solid. So solid surfaces, you can, actually, you can hear it transfer through there and will actually go a lot faster. Electromagnetic waves, again, are the difference. They don't need any medium to travel through. They can travel through the vacuum of space. Again, very fortunate, otherwise the class would have been done already because we'd have covered, we'd have nothing we could have covered. There'd be nothing, we wouldn't know anything about space. You'd go out at night and everything would be completely dark. And of course, if that were the case, we wouldn't, couldn't be here in the first, right? There's no sunlight, there'd be no heat, there'd be no atmosphere, so we wouldn't be here anyway. So, fortunate thing that electromagnetic waves do not need to travel through anything. Now, the way they're created, and again, just a little bit, you don't need to go into the technical technicalities of this, but it's really created by the charges, by particles that will vibrate, vibrating particles. So you get electric field lines, and as you actually can cause this one to vibrate, it can actually give off what they call an electromagnetic wave. I'm not too worried about the details of it. That's more of, that's more of a big physics class thing. So you take, you know, take regular physics class, they'll go through a lot of details on 
how you can create electromagnetic waves and you have electric fields and magnetic fields and they're all perpendicular to each other and, tra- and the one, when one changes the other changes. So one fades and the other forms. And I think, does my next one? Okay, the next two show a little bit about this. But magnetic and electric fields are essentially, you can't, you can't separate them from each other. Magnetic fields you're familiar with. Usually not as familiar, quite as familiar with the electric fields, but magnetic fields, you know, compass, right? If you take a compass out, it points towards the North Pole. Well, almost. It points towards the North Magnetic Pole. So our North Pole, magnetic pole on the Earth is actually up here in Northern Canada. The North Pole is a little further around there. So they're not exactly lined up. But that will exert a force on a particle. So if we look at had some nice aurora recently. I don't think they got down as far south as us yet, but we may, be, we may get some. But charged particles from the sun come streaming through space. They strike the Earth's magnetic field, and they don't just hit the Earth. Good, another good fortunate thing for us, these, these are a lot of high energy particles striking the Earth would not be a pleasant thing for us, those that made it through the atmosphere. They actually get kind of focused by these magnetic field lines and get funneled in towards the poles, so around the North Magnetic Pole and the South Magnetic Pole. So if you look here, and actually that's why you see most of the aurora up north, you see pictures from Canada, Alaska, Scandinavia. You see a lot of the aurora pictures from there. You don't get a lot from, you know, further south. You don't get them from Panama and Ecuador and everything down further south because you don't usually get a lot of the particles making it through this part of the atmosphere. It's as uh, part of the magnetosphere, that part of the magnetic field. It's very hard for those charged particles to make it through. But that's an example of a magnetic field. And that will exert a force on a moving charged particle and kind of funnel them in. So they sort of, as they come in, they get funneled along the magnetic field lines either way. So you'll get aurora around the south magnetic pole and around the north magnetic pole. Now here's the example. I said, again, you don't need to worry about the details of this, but this is just how an electromagnetic wave works. So electric fields in red vibrate in one direction. So you got it, this is three-dimensional. So they vibrate in one direction, magnetic fields vibrate in the other. Well, it turns out that as an electric field changes, it creates a magnetic field. When a magnetic field changes, it creates an electric field. So as this one is changing and becomes zero, has no value as it, cha- as it goes through, then the magnetic field has gotten its strongest. And then as it starts to change, it pr- so it becomes a self-propagating wave. It will continue going. The electric field will be changing in the magnetic field, and that will constantly travel through space. So one change in one field makes the other. The electric field, as that changes, creates a magnetic field. And the magnetic field changing creates the electric field, which creates the magnetic field, which creates the electric field. You know, over and over and over billions of times a second, depending on how fast this, what kind of wavelength this is. And that's, again, that's the technical details. I'm not too worried about you worrying about the details here. I want you to have the basic ideas that I've given you through. Knowing that it's a changing electric and magnetic field is nice, but I don't expect you to be able to get into the physics of it. We're not going to go any deeper into it than, than that. So let's look and see what these different types are. Here's the electromagnetic spectrum. So visible light. It's only a tiny portion. This, is, this picture is not the best one. It's not to scale, even in the slightest. But gives you an idea to start out that here's visible light. That's what we're used to, right? The colors of the rainbow. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet. 
So if we split up light, that's what we see. But there's a, that's what our eyes, sort of like we'd mentioned with the, the dog whistle, right? The dogs can hear, hear frequencies that we can't hear. Well, there are also a lot of parts of the electromagnetic spectrum that we can't see directly. So here's red. That's as far as our eyes can see is into the red part of the spectrum. But if you go beyond that to shorter and shorter wavelengths, shorter wavelengths this way, or sorry, longer wavelength to longer and longer wavelengths, then there is another part. There's the infrared. Now infrared you see is you know, like night vision goggles, right? You put a separate set of goggles that can detect infrared radiation. You're emitting infrared radiation right now. You know, the bo typical body temperature emits something in the infrared part of the spectrum. But you can't see it. You won't be able to see it. You can put special detectors to see it. You can put night vision goggles on and you can see the infrared radiation. But you can't see it with your eye because your eye is not sensitive to that. Radio. Radio waves, again, not what you're hearing. If you listen, listen, radio waves are not something you can listen to. Radio waves are a transmission medium for the radio. You know, the sound can be encoded into it, but it's not actually the radio wave that you're listening to. So if you actually you know, tune to a galaxy on a radio, all you're going to hear is a staticky noise. You don't actually hear, you won't actually hear anything coherent. And it's the same thing with your regular radio waves. The radio wave is a transmission medium for, and the sound is encoded into that. And they are encoded by either changing the amplitude or the frequency of those waves. So if you're looking at a specific radio station at you know, however many megahertz if you're doing FM, and FM means frequency modulation. So you're modulating the frequency a little bit and you change that frequency to encode the music, the talk, whatever, the news, whatever they're doing, traffic, weather, whatever they're putting in there, you encode, you encode it in there. And that's what you hear. You, and then the, your radio can decipher that and turn it back into sound. And it's done, that's, that's FM. AM is done similarly, except you modi instead of doing the frequency changing, you modify the amplitude. AM is amplitude modulation. So you modify the amplitude, again, a little bit, just to encode the waves into it. So those are radio and infrared. On the other end, again, these are the long wavelengths much longer, much lower energy. So much less dangerous, you know, not as dangerous to us. The other ones are the ones that are more damaging. Ultraviolet. So you go to shorter wavelengths than violet, you get ultraviolet. That's the one that'll, that'll give you a sunburn, right? Sunburn in the summer. You've got to watch out for the ultraviolet. If you go further out, you get x-rays. Well, x-rays are real nice, right? When you've when when you got a broken arm or something, it's real good to be able to, for them to be able to see in and see what's wrong. But they can also do a lot of damage to you. You know, an overexposure to x-rays can cause damage. Gamma rays are even worse. Gamma rays are even higher energy. They're, but they're all the same type of particle. Everything we've talked about with waves, they're all the identical types of particles. And all of these are detectable from space. So we can actually look at all of these different parts of the, of the spectrum. So if we want to look at a star, you know, a hundred years ago we looked at a star and it was visible light. That's all we could see, this little portion. Now we can actually look at that star invisible. We can take an infrared picture of it with an infrared telescope. We can look at it in radio waves, ultraviolet, x-rays, gamma rays. Put all that information together and we get a much better picture than when we're studying just this tiny portion of the spectrum. Now let me see if my next one, this is a little bit better. This is a little bit more to scale. So now you see where our little bit of visible light is kind of just squished into there. You know, a little bit better to scale. There's our little bit of visible light. And that was astronomy up until the 1930s. 
That was the only thing we had to study, was visible light. So anything else that was going on further to the left, further to the right than that, we didn't know anything about at the time. Now we have, now we are able to study all these other areas. So we can actually study things like infrared and ultraviolet. And they're even subdivided a little bit. You'll see that there's near infrared and far infrared, and near ultraviolet and far ultraviolet. The near and far just mean how close you are to the visible part of the spectrum. So if you're near the visible spectrum, it's the near. If you're far away from the visible part, it's the far. Yes, sir? Um, for infrared mm -hmm. and other um, uh, wavelengths that mm -hmm. we can't see, um, you said we have like cameras and special yeah. equipment that allow us to see that. Mm -hmm. um, how does it do that since we can't see Well, you can make a detector. It's, it's still a wave. The energy is still there. So your eyes won't, aren't sensitive to it. But you can still make a detector that'll pick that up. Night vision goggles are a good one. They have a way, their, their sensors will pick up, are sensitive to specifically infrared radiation. And they'll pick up infrared. They won't pick up lots of other radiation necessarily. They're only sensitive to that range. So you can make an instrument that is sensitive to specific, to, to a very specific wavelength. Question? Yes, ma'am. If you're doing the brain, that's more, that's probably more of a false colored the image. False colored. And you will see that though. You'll see if I show you a radio picture of a galaxy, I mean, I can't, I have to show it in false color because your eyes can't see radio waves. Even infrared, you know, you have to do, you have to false color that. But the scans of the brain are probably like a CAT scan or something. I'm not sure of the de exactly how those are, you know, I know what an x-ray, how an x-ray does, but I'm not sure about the CAT scans, what kind of material that's, what that's using to do it. But when you look at these, again, you had infrared, ultraviolet, you have hard and soft x-rays, you've got gamma rays, you've got radio. You know, there's the portion, little portions of the spectrum you might be used to. There's the FM and the AM bands. There's no limit. So this actually, we've got it ending. It never really ends. So gamma rays can go to higher and higher frequencies and more and more energy. Radio waves can go to longer and longer wavelengths. But once you get down, to th once you start talking about things that are where the wavelengths are the size of Mount Everest, and you're talking a wavelength of many miles, we have no way to detect them. Okay? They get, they're too big. You'd have to make a telescope big enough to be able to detect those. And the telescope would have to be significantly bigger than the wavelength you're trying to observe. So it's easy to observe radio optical light because you don't need a very big telescope because the wavelengths are very small. Radio telescopes, which we'll talk about in the next chapter, need to be much bigger because when you're talking about wavelengths that are the size of your finger, or the size of a person, which are some that radio telescopes look at, you need a much bigger telescope to see it. Now the last thing to note on here is this little, this little tab, tab, little strip on the bottom. And you see most of it is blocked out. So this dark area, all this is showing is what our atmosphere lets through. So in some ways that's very good. Our atmosphere blocks out all the gamma rays. We really don't want those gamma rays from space and x-rays from space coming straight through the atmosphere and you know, talk about sunburn with ultraviolet, what would you get with, that, with even higher energy? Not only would it burn you, you'd be... Could you, can you just like sort of combust? If it scrambles all your molecules... Mm -hmm. like if you had enough, I mean, enough high energy radiation, I mean, if you're stuck, you know, some of the... Some of the, what was it, the, I mean, you'll get radiation poisoning, you can, it, it'll, it'll destroy you, it'll no, kill no, like if you. Just oh. keep going. Further to the right. Further to the right? Just like combust. 
eventually that would have that mean you'd eventually you get you're getting down there there is going to be eventually be some kind of limiting that you'd be able to detect and you know you can only get so small but there's no it's much smaller than like the atomic nucleus you're getting to such small wavelengths that are much smaller than anything but so yeah eventually it would be worse than beginning exposed to gamma rays. You know, you know, being exposed to the core of a nuclear reactor would be nothing compared to that. If you could be exposed to some of that radiation, but that kind of stuff, fortunately, is blocked out by the atmosphere. But I'm saying, what would happen? It would. It would. It would. It would burn you. Burn is in just you know tear your cells apart. It would be enough energy just to tear your cells apart. So those would get blocked. So we don't get we don't get gamma rays, X-rays. Most of the ultraviolet gets blocked out by the atmosphere as well. A lot of the infrared even gets blocked out here. Here's the visible light. Here's our visible light that makes it through the atmosphere. Some of the infrared does. A lot of it doesn't. Some of the radio does. Again, a lot of that, especially the longer wavelengths, get all blocked out by our atmosphere. So things when you're talking about wavelengths that are tens and hundreds or more of meters, they don't get through our atmosphere. Those aren't quite as dangerous. You know, radio waves don't normally hurt you. you know, radio waves are traveling through us right now all the time. But there's only this little bit that we can actually see from the Earth. So we can see visible light. We can see radio light. Anything else we want to observe, we've got to get off the Earth's surface. Some, some infrared too, I should say. We can look at some in the infrared. But if we want to observe anything else, any other part of the spectrum, if I want to look at the universe in x-rays, I can't do it from the surface of the Earth. It's fortunate that we're blocked out for us, but as astronomers, you want to see, you want to see that. You want to be able to study that. The only way to study x-rays from space, is, from, from space is to get up into space, get up above the Earth's atmosphere. So I said, uh, uh, until the 1930s, optical was the only thing we had to observe. Starting in the 1930s, radio telescopes were developed. Not a lot until the 30s through, the, through World War II and then into the 50s, they started to get a lot bigger. So in the last 50, 60 years, we've actually gotten a lot more in radio. It's only been since the 60s, 70s with satellites that we've been able to actually observe any of these other wavelengths. Anything that's blacked out here, we cannot see from the surface of the Earth. So we need to actually get up above the Earth's atmosphere to be able to see them. Okay, and a lot of this is what I've talked about, but let me go through again briefly. Again, and what I've been talking about last one. All you see is a few wavelengths. We can see the visible, part of the infrared, and the radio. And that's it. If we're looking from Earth, that's all we can see. So again, 100 years ago, our knowledge of the universe was limited to what we saw in visible light. Our, so our knowledge has greatly expanded over these last 30, 40 years as we have been able to now be able to not just study that galaxy that we looked at in visible light this, this morning, but we can also study it in, we could take an infrared picture of it. I could look and see if it's emitting x-rays. I could see if it's emitting gamma rays. I could see what kind of radio waves it's emitting. And I can use that to put a better picture together of everything that's going on. So our atmosphere, again, is very good at blocking out that type of radiation, all those types of radiation. Radio, get, radio gets through, visible light gets through. If you want to do things from the surface of the Earth, that's the only way you can observe. If you were on another planet, you could be stuck on a planet like Venus. Venus is perpetually covered by clouds. So not only is it cloudy every other day like it is here in the winter, but it's cloudy every day. 
and the clouds never clear. It's completely blanketed in clouds. So if you wanted to study astronomy on Venus, you either even if you want to look in optical, you got to get up above the atmosphere. You can't even optical light does not make it through the clouds. So you would not be able to see. Radio waves would still make it through. So if astronomy developed on Venus, it would probably develop through radio waves. Of course, there's other problems with Venus, such as the fact that it's hot enough there to melt lead that you're really not going to have anything, anything occurring there. But. And the other thing is just talking to you, if we go back to that, that's actually, the scale is actually what we call a logarithmic scale. Let me go back to the previous slide just to... Usually you do linear scales, you count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, right, and so on when you do, when you do a graph. These are actually done in factors of 10. So as you see, you go from 100 meters to 10 meters to 1 meter, 10 centimeters, 1 centimeter, and so on down. So everything, each time you go one tick, you don't just go from 1 to 2. You go from 1 to 10 to 100 to 1,000. So we've really compressed everything in there to try to show the entire spectrum at once. Put everything together there. So that's all, that's all the last is saying. But that allows you to show everything on one plot and keep it roughly at least to scale. Okay. Next is thermal radiation. And that's probably about as far as we'll get through is into thermal radiation. I won't get any further than this today. What we call, first of all, what we see in thermal radiation is radiation just emitted by an object depending on its temperature. So we looked at the stars. We said the hotter stars looked blue. They have a higher temperature. They're going to emit a certain type of radiation. They're going to emit more blue and ultraviolet light than a very cool star. A very cool red star will emit a lot more red and infrared light. So with different ways to study different stars. But the black body spectrum is an ideal. So this is what an ideal star would be like. It emits, a black body means that it absorbs all the radiation that hits it. So it doesn't reflect anything to it. So, you know, my shirt's not a very good black body because it's reflecting a lot of radiation to you. If you got a black shirt, black coat, that's a pretty good black body. It's absorbing all the radiation. You don't see, you're not seeing anything being reflected to you or not near as much. So a black body is the ideal. It would absorb all the radiation that hits it. Doesn't reflect anything. And it emits a radiation in this distinct pattern that depends only on the temperature. So it only depends on the temperature. And as you heat it up, it will change. It will change, the, pa- the shape will change the same, but where your peak is will vary. Now if you have an electric stove, you kind of see this in sometimes, right? You turn on your, the electric stove, you turn on very low, you don't even see it. You don't see anything, right? It's hot, it gets hot, but you don't really see anything. As you turn it up higher and higher, it starts to glow dull red, and then it'll get a brighter red, brighter red, and if you get it real high, it's a bright orange. So if you could get it even higher, it would actually go up and it would look yellower or green or blue if you could get it hot enough. So if you could turn it up to a high enough temperature. Fortunately, you don't really want to do that because the red, the red, the red and orange can do enough damage to you. But that's, oh, that's the same type of thing and that's actually, that type of thing would be a very good black body. So a black body can give off light, but it doesn't reflect any light. So that's the big difference. It can glow. The sun is a very good black body. Sun absorbs almost anything that hits it. It still glows, but it's giving off energy only because of its temperature. And a black body that is about 6,000 degrees should peak in the yellowish-green part of the spectrum, which is where the sun is. So it just depends, on the te- just depends on the temperature of the black body. So it emits the amount of radiation just depending on the temperature. 
Question? I see. Okay. And I said we were coming to the Kelvin scale. So here you get to see the Kelvin scale. So you see to the left we got Fahrenheit. You're familiar with that one, right? So water freezes at 32 degrees, boils at 212 degrees. Celsius, a little bit familiar with. Water freezes at zero and boils at 100. Kelvin is the temperature we use in astronomy. So when I say the temperature is, you know, the sun is 6,000 degrees, that's in the Kelvin scale. And what the Kelvin scale does is it starts at zero. Now how can we start at zero? We can't get any colder. Let's go back to what, what temperature means. Temperature is really a measure of the motion, of how fast particles are moving. So the faster particles are moving, the more they're vibrating, the more, the more energy there is, and the higher the temperature is going to be. So all the temperature is is a measure of that motion. At some point, if you get cold enough, there is a level where, all, where the where motion stops. And that's what we call absolute zero. Absolute zero would be zero degrees Kelvin. You can't get any colder than that because everything's already stopped moving. You can't move negatively, so you can't get anything below that. That's the absolute lowest temperature you can get. There's a corresponding temperature in Celsius. It would be 273 degrees below zero. You know, even in the depths of winter here, we don't get close to that. Or 459 below zero Fahrenheit. So no temperatures that we ever come close to reaching on the Earth. It never comes close to getting that cold. But if you could get that cold, everything there would be no motion. The, even the molecules and atoms would stop, move, would stop moving, would stop their vibrations. And if that's all it is, is particles moving, is what we measure as temperatures. When we look at the higher ones, you see why we don't. When we talk about Celsius and Kelvin, there's really no difference. When you talk about a temperature of about 10 million degrees to fuse hydrogen to helium, that's the source of energy for the sun. Well, you can either talk about 10 million Celsius or 10,273 Kelvin. If you're talking about 10 million degrees, what's 273 degrees? Makes a big difference to us right now if it's, you know, if it's, let's see, what well, freezing. So it's zero degrees or it's 273 degrees Celsius, it's a big difference. In terms of when you're talking about 10 million degrees, it's hardly noticeable. But you'll notice that hydrogen actually, if you look at the Fahrenheit scale, would actually be even larger. So everything, but everything we use, when I give you numbers in astronomy, when I mention temperatures, I'm always referring to the Kelvin temperature scale. So anything I give you here, unless I specifically say otherwise, sometimes when the planetary class, when you're talking about planets, you tend to go back to the others because it's a little more, makes a little more sense, a little more, you know, some temperatures that you're familiar with. But when you're talking about stars, we're already talking about temperatures. And even the coolest stars are 3,000 degrees. That's not a temperature you're normally familiar with. You know, you turn your oven up to 500, that's pretty hot. You know, 3,000, that would be, you know, it'd be ridiculous. So any temperature that I give you here, when we talk about stars, when we talk about galaxies or anything and how the stars are going, is always a Kelvin temperature. So let's go back to look at those two radiation laws we're going to go over. I have time to finish those. Let's see. The first radiation law simply says that the peak wavelength is inversely proportional to the temperature. That means, again, and you notice that these are four objects shown here. And if you notice, the shape of the spectrum is exactly the same, right? Shape is the same. It looks the same in each of them. All that's happened is that it's shifted. It's gotten bigger and it's shifted over. 
it's shifted over to the right as the temperature increases. Way up at the top, we're looking at something very cold. A very cold would be a dark nebula out in space. Maybe where stars are just getting ready to start forming. So it's very cold. It might only be 60 degrees. And again, not 60 degrees Fahrenheit, not you know cold room temperature, 60 degrees above the minimum where you can go. Extremely cold by our standards. And if you notice, here's the visible part of the spectrum. All the radiation it's emitting is way off to the left of that. So it's emitting lots of radio, maybe some infrared, but nothing in the visible. So if we put a visible telescope there, what do you see? Well, there is a visible picture behind that. You don't see anything. It's dark. Right? You see some stars around it, but right in the middle where those lines are showing, there's nothing there. Nothing visible. But if we look in the radio, and that's what those contour lines are showing, the intensity of the radio getting higher and higher towards the center, there actually is a lot of radio emission coming from that, that part of space. So we can look into a part where, area where stars are forming with the radio part of the spectrum that we could not see visibly. As we heat things up a little bit more, 600 kelvins, we start to get over to the edge, edge of the visible spectrum. We're starting to see a little bit of visible light forming. Most of it's still infrared. Again, this could still be very young stars forming. Very young stars, they're heating up, so they've gone from a very, very cold temperature to a much higher temperature, 10 times higher. And they're starting to emit a lot of infrared light. Most of their light is in the infrared. When we study stellar nurseries, we look in the infrared because we could, that's where they're emitting most of their light. They're not emitting a lot of visible light yet. A little bit, we can see it, but not near as much as when you want to look where most of the light is coming. As we go a little further out, we increase that temperature 10 times more. 6,000 degrees, there's the sun. And the sun happens to peak, you know, right where our eyes are sensitive, right in the visible part of the spectrum. So we can actually see the visible light, so we see the visible light from the sun. So our eyes are actually sensitive there. Again, we've gotten a much higher temperature. The sun does emit, does emit infrared and radio waves as well. It does emit um, ultraviolet, X-rays, and gamma rays as well. But it peaks. Most of its energy is being given in the visible part of the spectrum. And then if we get even a little higher, go up to 60,000 degrees, extremely, extremely hot stars. Then we see that the peak, we haven't even reached the peak in the visible. We're getting lots of visible light. We'd be able to see them. But they're actually emitting more energy even further out to the ultraviolet. And they're emitting more x-rays and more gamma rays than something like our sun is. What this first radiation law is telling us is just where this peak is. It's telling us that the higher the temperature, the shorter the wavelength of the peak. So as the temperature gets higher and higher, the wavelength where this peak occurs goes to shorter wavelengths. It goes from radio waves, which are the longest wavelengths, up into here, visible and then ultraviolet, which are much shorter wavelengths. If you went to even higher temperatures, if you went to 600,000 degrees or 6 million degrees, that peak would continue to shift further off to the right and eventually you'd end up peaking at things like x-rays, where the, most of the energy is coming in x-rays and very little of it is actually coming in the optical. Very little percentage of it is coming in the optical. And the last one, I'll finish up here, just do the two radiation laws. The total energy emitted. So there's two things. One tells us where the peak is. That's what we just went over. The other tells us the total energy depends on the fourth power of the temperature. So this, put it in equation form. I know you'll love that. F just tell, is just telling us the flux or how much energy is coming out. 
think of it as the amount of energy coming out. The little Greek sigma, you don't need to worry about. It's a constant. It's just a physical constant. You can look up the number for it, but you don't need to do any calculation with that. But then it depends on the fourth power of the temperature. Meaning that if you have two stars, and one star is 3,000 degrees, and one star is 6,000 degrees, that 6,000 degree star isn't going to be twice as bright, or four times as bright, or eight. It's going to be 16 times brighter. It's going to be 16 times more energy. Because it's twice as bright, 2 to the fourth, 2 times 2 times 2 times 2 is 16 times brighter. So even a little change in temperature changes this, can change the amount of energy the sun is putting out very drastically. It's one of the ways we know that the sun has not really changed its temperature a lot over the, over the last you know, billions of years. Because if it had changed even a small amount, you know, you don't need very much. A doubling, okay, that would be a lot, but even a much smaller amount, if it increased it by a couple percent, all of a sudden, you would have been, it would have been much hotter on Earth. Not just a little bit harder, but could have wiped out everything on Earth, just that little change in temperature. So that actually is one way that we can learn that the temperature of the sun has been, it changes, it can change slightly, but it's been very, very stable over the past billions of years since life has been here. Because a little change, either direction, either make everything way too hot or make everything way too cold. And I think, let me just see what was next. Yeah, I'm not going, not going into that. So let me just finish up there with the spectral. We'll do the laws and I'll pick up. So you won't have anything on 2.5. It'll go through 2.4. And again, if you want to review, I have the video lecture up on D2L. This one will be put up. Uh, in a little bit if you want to rehear what I had. If you do have the homework, make sure I get that. If you haven't given I know a lot of you emailed it to me already. Yeah, I just wrote my name on the top of everyone. Just That's good. Thank you. So we get to the U